He's not your typical, what you would call megachurch pastor. Although his church was well in the megachurch range, five to 10,000 members, he was, uh, I guess we could say, classically trained. Yale Divinity School, doctorate, master's degree. And his church was in rural Minneapolis um, called Woodland Hills, still there. And they had uh, kind of taken over an old abandoned Home Depot and hollowed it out and made it in the church. And he was getting to know the community and, and wanted to be involved. And he was at a celebration at a local, another local evangelical church over the 4th of July weekend, I think of 2006. And the presentation, the multimedia presentation ended the worship this way. There was a video as they were playing Amazing Grace. And the video, of course, was, um, you can picture it. You can picture it because as Amazing Grace began to end, then the, the chords kind of go into God Bless America. And as it goes into God Bless America, the, the video is, a, is a, an aerial shot, probably not drones, but probably planes of, you know, of shining seas and, you know, and amber waves of grain and purple mountain majesty. But it was the end that got him, is that as the end of God Bless America began to approach, um, you know, the, the part where you hear that great uh, where Kate Smith really lets, lets it out, you know. All of a sudden, the view gets kind of cut, if you will, by three F-22 Raptors, fighter jets. And as they come down, they split this way with one going up the middle. And as they came up in their wake, three crosses come up on the hill. And then the screen is wiped with a waving American flag. And as the jets leave the scene, you're left with the crosses and the flag. Dr. Boyd said that I was one of the very few people who stood there in horror and aghast at what just happened. He said, I looked around me and people were weeping as if the gospel had been preached uh, full tilt right in front of them where Paul says, you know, when he told the Galatians, how could you guys go wrong? I preached the gospel so clear, he told the Galatians, that it was as if Jesus was crucified right in front of you. It's then that he felt that he needed to address something with the church and he went back to his church and he began a sermon series that he called the cross and the sword. And in the first two weeks, first two weeks of preaching about this um, perversion of the cross's power, if you will, he lost a third of his membership. Very dramatic, too. There's sometimes in, in the sermon where many people would get up and make it a very good point to turn their back on him and walk out. The series lasted 12 weeks, and by the time that the 12th week came around, the one-third that he lost, he had gained one-third more as the message began to spread throughout town. He turned that series into his book, The Myth of a Christian Nation. 2007, it was published, and the parenthetical title is How the Grab for Political Power in America is Destroying the Church. 
And though the term, he didn't use the term, and the term has become popular today, and I knew that as we preached through this series, as we studied through this series, the cross, a foolish stumbling block, looking at the actual power of the cross and what the church has done with it, because today is week 13. We've been quite a few places, haven't we? We've been to the heights and we, I knew this day was coming. I knew this day was coming because Laodicea has to deal with this today. So today, if he were to write that parenthetical title, he would, he would say, not, maybe not uh, the church's grab for political power, but maybe he would say the church's nationalistic religion and worship is destroying the church today. And we know that we have to deal with this because as we told last week, Laodicea is, is, is it, right? Laodicea begins in the year 1850 in this country. 1850 is when Philadelphia's reign ends, if you will, of when Jesus goes to the church in Philadelphia and can't find one bad thing to say about her and then immediately comes to the church at Laodicea and can't find one good thing to say about her. So this idea that we proclaim Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and a foolishness to Gentiles, I knew that we would have to address this last stumbling block because I really believe, I really believe. Do you believe we're in the last days? Do you believe that we are the church at Laodicea? Then we have to address this, don't we? Because that's what's happened to the power of the cross in the past 2,000 years. The church has tried everything, everything to substitute the true power of the cross. By the way, quiz of the last 13 weeks, what is the true power of the cross? One word, what is it? Love. You guys were all right, he said Jesus, okay? Because Jesus equals what? Jesus equals love. He isn't loving. God is not a loving God. He is love. There's a big difference, isn't there? A huge difference. And the church decided, even back at its very beginning, the church at Ephesus says, he says, I've got only one thing against you. It it, it is amazing. It is amazing that uh, 60 years after Jesus ascended to heaven, in just 60 years, he does have a thing that he already has against the church. And he says, this is what I have against you. You forgot your first one. You forgot your first love. But what's wonderful about it is that, well, what's terrible about it is that over the next 2,000 years, the church continues to deteriorate. I mean, even in his his rebuke, when you get to the, the very last, there's nothing good to say about the church. He has absolutely nothing good to say. So the bad thing is, is that the church's constant look to um, uh, substitute love with something else nearly causes our death. As a matter of fact, Sardis, remember, he says, you guys got a reputation of being alive just before Philadelphia. The Protestant church, the Reformation church, you guys got a reputation for being alive, but you're actually what? You're actually dead. So he says this, he says, he says, remember from where you have fallen, repent, do the works you did when? At first, that admonition is for allowed to see it more than anybody else, right? 
Why? Because the other churches have come and gone. This is it for us. In other words, fall in love with love again. Find the cross's true power. Just a review about Laodicea from last week. Laodicea is a defiant assurance in one's own resources. It's an inauthentic church because the church boasts, I am rich and have need of nothing. That is not a Christian church. Why? Because a Christian is in constant need. A Christian doesn't take a breath without the love of God. What she says and who she is are two completely different things. It's reality versus perception, and she is not living in reality because she's blind to her true condition. And most were shocked when they found out that when Jesus looks at this inauthentic church, he makes a most interesting response, and that is, when I look at you, I want to throw up. As he said, I'm about to vomit you out of my mouth. The last one makes Jesus sick. So what is the stumbling block to the cross, this this substitution of the power of the cross? What does it have to do with making the church lukewarm? And that's what I want to talk about today. And I have to tell you, I have to admit, I got tons and tons of notes. My sermons, it's a mess. It's a mess here, okay? It's a mess here. So I'm just going to talk, and I'm going to look, and when I see you either pick up pitchforks or... When I see you begin to nod off, I'll just wrap it up. Is that all right? I mean, I've got tons and tufts to say, but I, I, don't, I don't know what I'm going to say next. So what is it then? This power of the cross. What is it that when it comes to today? What is, what is Christian nationalism? What is it that this second beast has done to the church to make her think that she is an authentic church of Christ, but actually is not. Where do we live today? What's going on? Well, what does the church not need? Church doesn't need him. He's outside the door. Philadelphia, there was a door open to the Philadelphia church that he said nobody could close. Laodicea happened to close it and lock it. Well, maybe not lock it, because Jesus is not going to force his way in, but he is knocking on the door, asking what? To be let in. So what is it? What is it? I I just wrote down a couple of things. Uh, We believe, or have believed in the past, that we have a righteousness by remnant doctrine. In other words, that what makes us righteous is that we're remnant. If that's true, then we have no empathy or no sympathy for sinners that are outside. If you're a lesser sinner than, than, than another, how far will you go? In other words, how far will I go to welcome you, the sinner, in if I believe that, that, that I, I'm welcoming you in because I, I may be a sinner, but I'm just a lesser sinner than you are, though? Is that love? Is that welcoming? So marginalization. If you can't be saved, if you're this bad a sinner, you don't belong. And if you think about it, has any church ever really said, uh, actually ever really lived up when they actually said, you know what, everybody is welcome here. 
Really? Have you been to a church that welcomed everyone? I mean welcomed them. Not just invited them to church, but welcomed them. So one thing that hit me last week as I was wrapping up and I was talking to David. How long has it been since Jesus had a body and was walking around this earth? It's been about 2,000 years, right? So the actual physical manifestation of, of Laodicea locking him out, we're not talking about him anymore, are we? Jesus is locked out, but is it really him personally, him, that's locked out? 2,000-year-old him? No. Who is it, Grady? We just read about it, didn't we? When you've done this to the least of these, you've done this to me. Maybe allowed to see his problem are the people that we've decided don't belong. What the church has decided doesn't belong. Not just Seventh-day Adventist church, we're talking about the North American church. We're talking about the evangelical church. We're talking about, uh, uh, I I hate to confine it to North American Christianity, but that's what we've done, haven't we? On the one hand, I know we should identify with North America because that's where we started. We are a North American identity, but we're also a world church, aren't we? I'm not so sure that we've done as good a job anywhere else in the world as we've done here. In a lot of ways, the American church is identified by who is not in it. We identify ourselves by who we keep out. So what is the church not hot about? What is the church lukewarm about? What do they claim lukewarmness is? What's important to the church? What gets the church hot and bothered? What gets the church up and going? I have a quote. I I didn't have it in my notes, but it just reminded me as as Bev was singing that hymn. There's a a note where where a concerned group of parents went to a local uh, church board to talk to them about the particular music director. They didn't like his music thought it was too modern, thought it uh, had too much syncopation contained within it, thought it inflamed young people's uh, uh, impure desires. And it's funny, I thought you'd read that and you'd say, well, that could be uh, just about any Adventist church from the 1970s all the way to today, right? Guess who the music director was they were talking about? Isaac Watts. 1647. What does the church get fired up about? What do we decide we're going to go to war over? So Philadelphia ends in 1850. Six years after the great disappointment, where the Millerites uh, suffered their their disappointment October 22nd, and then they broke up into these uh, various groups of which Seventh-day Adventism finally found their way. Amen? Amen. I read two weeks ago that early Adventists had pointed out one of the horns of the two-horned beast coming from Millerite preaching. One of the horns was what? Do you remember? One of the horns was slavery. Remember, this is written, this is talked about in 1830, 1840. One of the horns is slavery. Even then, it was recognized that slavery was not a particular American problem. It wasn't a government problem. It wasn't a political problem. It was a church problem. 
And they actually believed that the, first, uh, the second angel's message, the call to come out of her, was Millerite's call to come out of the churches that still promoted slavery? Wow. I found out this week that the abolitionist candidate for president, and I didn't get the, the exact election, was a Millerite. Isn't that amazing? Real quick from an article that appeared in Compass Magazine in 1996. The Seventh-day Adventist Church was organized the year 1863, the same year that President Lincoln signed the Emancipation Proclamation that freed the slaves in the southern United States. Two years later, the Civil War ended. The enforcement of the document began for the African Americans living in the South. But we know they didn't find freedom, right? We didn't find it at all. They found another way to continue to enslave. Poverty, illiteracy, white prejudice continued to plague them in the South. Immediately after the war, there was a a dire need for help and a great opportunity for evangelism among the former slaves. 1865, we'd been an official church. We became the Seventh-day Adventist Church just two years before. This was our opportunity As early as 1861, Ellen White prophesied that God would punish the United States for the high crime of slavery. It's interesting. It's interesting that she would say that. Volume one of the testimonies, page 264. God is punishing this nation for the high crime of slavery. He has the destiny of the nation in his hands. He will punish the South for the sin of slavery and the North for so long suffering its overreaching and overbearing influence. What's interesting is that she did it and she claimed that the vision was from God. At a Bible conference in Roosevelt, New York, August 3rd, 1861, we were assembled on the day set apart for humiliation, fasting, and prayer. She said, the spirit of the Lord rests upon us. I was taken off in vision. What's interesting was that she said that there would be a punishment in 1861 for slavery. What was real interesting is that the only other person that I ever heard come right out and say that was Abraham Lincoln in his second inaugural. We all know his second inaugural for the ending, don't we? For the way that he wrapped it up with malice toward none and charity for all, right? That's how he wrapped it up. But what the genius was, the genius was, was that he was trying to figure out as the war was winding down, what now was going to bring both together. The last thing that he wanted to do was for anybody to believe that God was on the north side because they won the war. And he didn't want the north thinking or believing that their cause or crusade was okay because it was righteous, because he knew the state of prejudice in the north. And what's interesting is he says this. He says, both, north and south, read the same Bible, pray to the same God, each invokes his aid against the other. It may seem strange that any men would dare to ask a just God's assistance in wringing their bread from the sweat of other men's faces, but let us judge, not that we be not judged. Let us not be judged, let us not judge as we not be judged. So what did he say? He said, it is strange to me 
that those in the South would pray to God that they'd win the war so they could continue enslaving people, bringing their bread, okay? He said, it is strange to me, but let's not what? But let's not judge people from the Union. The Almighty has his own purposes. Woe unto the world because of offenses. For it must, for it must need be the offenses come, but woe to that man by whom the offense cometh. If we shall suppose that American slavery is one of those offenses which in the providence of God must needs come, but which have continued through his appointed time, he now wills to remove and that he gives to both north and south this terrible war as the woe due to those by whom the offenses came. Shall we discern therein any departure from those divine attributes which the believers in a living God always ascribed to him? Do you hear what he said? The curse was on both the north and the south, and guess what the curse was? It was the war. The war was the curse. And it was on both sides. Yet if God wills that it continue until all the wealth piled up by the bondman's 250 years of unrequited toil shall be sunk until every drop of blood drawn with the lash shall be paid by another drawn with the sword, as was said 3,000 years ago, so still it must be, said the judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. And that's when he then said, with malice towards none. And charity to all. Ellen White said in 1861, the entire nation is going to be cursed over slavery. Abraham Lincoln at the end of the Civil War says, the war was the curse. If you read a little further in volume, one of the testimonies talking about what the church gets fired up for, what the church actually uh, uh, finds important, what the church gets hot for, not hot nor cold, but what it gets out of its lukewarmness for. She writes a letter to a brother A in Oswego, New York, who happens to be a pro-slavery advocate. She tells him in the letter, you, you, your, uh, your values don't belong together. And she actually says that anybody, anybody by this time in 1860 that has pro-slavery values shall be removed from the fellowship. Unless you undo what you have done, it will be the duty of God's people to publicly withdraw their sympathy and fellowship from you in order to save the impression which must go out in regard to us as a people. We must let it be known that we have no such ones in our fellowship, that we will not walk with them in any church capacity. We used to disfellowship over what a national religion in law and war and practice condoned. Said that any pro-slavery member does not belong. We used to disfellowship for hatred, bigotry, and racism. And in the last few years, we worry about what it looks like if an Adventist is seen smoking. I was a member of a church that disfellowshipped a girl for being a cheerleader. 
Five years after, she was a cheerleader. I'll tell you that story if you want to know sometime. So this state of Laodicea from 1850 on, I know you're getting tired of me talking about slavery. (laughs) But did it get any better? As we get to the 1900s, as we move on, is the church any more lukewarm than it was or was not? you You can say yay or nay back in 1860. What about the 1930s? What's our, what's our record with the other most horrible scourge of the 19th and 20th centuries when it comes to racism? A particular brand of racism when it comes to anti-Semitism. Eli Wiesel wrote about the victims of the Holocaust. The victims perished not only because of the killers, but also because of the apathy of the bystanders. Those who perished were victims of Nazism and of society, though of different degrees. But what astonished us after the torment, after the tempest, was not that so many killers killed so many victims, but that so few care about us at all. What did the church do when we were called upon? There are millions of Christians in these countries. Was there ever a statement from any denomination? Was there ever a statement that stood up? No mass demonstrations in the streets of Berlin, Munich, or Vienna when the first anti-Semitic laws were passed. This is long before, before the final solution has its solution. The camps haven't even been constructed yet. They started passing these laws, which by the way, eerily sounded just like Jim Crow laws of the South. The church argued we didn't have the power to do something. Look at him. It was the Third Reich. We didn't have the power. We know we did. It's not true. When the Nazis wanted to implement their euthanasia program to eliminate the so-called mentally defective in Poland, do you know who stopped it? A combined coalition of Catholic bishops and Protestant clergy. And if nothing else, we could have gone down swinging, couldn't we? There were rescuers, there were Christian rescuers, and I'm not gonna downplay them in order to make any point, but there wasn't a church that stood up. A strong statement from any official church, I think would have saved many, many more. Who could argue against this fact? Our church specifically? We decided to live out one side, if you will, one uh, part of scripture, if you will. Again, a verse on a page in Romans 13, one that said, let every person be subject to the governing authorities for there is no authority except from God and those authorities that exist have been instituted by God. Our church in Eastern Europe decided that was the verse that they were going to use to carry out their mission. But what did they leave out? What's so tragic about this is that the church left out Daniel 6. How dangerous is Romans 13 without Daniel 6? Although Daniel knew that the document had been signed, he continued to go to his house, which had windows in its upper room toward Jerusalem, open to get down on his knees three times a day to pray to his God and praise him, just has been done previously. He did it to risk his life. 
1941, Adventist leadership instructed all churches to comply with the, the edict, for, with the mandate, if you will, from the Third Reich to expel all Jewish-related members. Some resisted, most didn't, and the some who did, it was done for them from the top. I have a picture of a uh, meeting room in the Union office in Vienna from 1942, and it has a yellow star in the middle with the words Juden Verboten. That's where the Union Committee meets. In 1942, not only had we expelled them from the church, we decided to no longer mail them any Adventist publication in order to distance ourselves completely from them. Sarah Nagelberg from Dornbrun SDA died at Mauthausen in Vienna. William Yokel, SDA member of a Vienna church for 33 years, asks for help and was told by the church that it was the responsibility of the Viennese Jewish community. Nothing is known what happened to him. Pastor and theologian Herman Kobes, who worked in Leipzig, was suspended for making it possible for a Jewish believer who'd been expelled out of his church to attend worship. Church leaders called the suspension a precautionary measure. In 1942, he was imprisoned, labeled as a Jewish sympathizer. Franz Ludwig, the Adventist publication director in Bernau, with his wife Frieda, was a Jew, interrogated by the Gestapo in 1939. The Adventist leaders in Prague were told by the German leadership in Berlin to disassociate themselves from their fellow workers. And when the church did, they were sent to Auschwitz. They survived, by the way. And I don't know if they're still alive, but they were when this article was written in 1990. And it simply says at the end of the article, it still pains them to recall these memories being shunned by their church. (laughs) Auschwitz. And they can just muster, "Eh, it's painful to recall. So even that I know I've talked about before and people have said, why are you still talking about this? Well, from the 90s well into the 2000s, Our evangelism, uh, I guess, a template, if you will, when we did evangelistic series, especially in the book of Daniel, and and when we got to the end of the, uh, uh, you know, the Daniel 8, the 2400 days, and and, and Daniel 9 in the midweek, you know, 34 AD and everything, and, and, and what did we say? We were still saying as early as the 2000s in 34 AD of the stoning of Stephen that God had rejected Israel, that the church had replaced Israel. I will tell you, you know, where a genocide can begin, especially a church-sponsored genocide can begin, is when no longer is when the church or the religious power no longer believes that the others are needed because they've been replaced. Forgetting that in Romans 11, verse 1, Paul says, I ask then, has God rejected his people? By no means. I myself am an Israelite, descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. I wonder what Paul would do sitting in one of our evangelistic series when we tell him that the church replaced Israel. 
I remember preaching in one of my first churches and I was talking about, uh, I was talking about how beautiful it was that God had put Miriam right in, in, in Pharaoh's daughter's path, you know, when she finds baby Moses. And, and, then, and then not only that, not only does she, she find him there and make sure that he's okay and realizes that Pharaoh's daughter has found favor in him, she then asks, would you like me to find a Hebrew woman to nurse her, nurse him for her? You know, so Moses actually got nursed by his mother and got paid for it. And I always remember this 90-year-old saint sitting in the front row looked at me and said, oh, man, typical Jew. About five years later at a camp meeting, prominent Adventist evangelist was making an illustration or a story where he was talking about buying something or finding a bargain or something like that and was actually used the words that he was being Jewed down. So I just ask, what's up, Remnant? What's up? Loud to see you. What do we get hot and bothered about? Now, I was going to talk about the 60s. I was going to talk about the civil rights movement. I can talk about all those things. But I see where we're at. And I know that I continue, the argument continues to come back at me. Why are you talking to us about this? You know, it wasn't us. We didn't enslave. Interesting thing about daring to be a Daniel. When Daniel begins his prayer in Daniel chapter nine, where he is about to be revealed to the Messiah actually coming, when the power of the cross is actually predicted and, 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 and fulfilled and told when it's going to be fulfilled for the first time, Daniel prays. He, he prays because he knows what's about to be given to him. He gets sick at the end of chapter eight. He wants to know the meaning of the, of the, of the vision. He wants to know because he's absolutely sick because he's just been told that this whole thing is gonna go on for like uh, a thousand more years than he thought it was going to. Jeremiah said 70. Now you're saying 1,844. What the heck? Right? It actually made him sick. So he begins to pray. And in the first couple of verses of the prayer, he actually confesses corporately the sins of Israel. And when he does, he says, have mercy on us. We have sinned. Chances are any of the sins that he is confessing, he probably did not personally take part in. But he identified with his people. You know, most of us would distance ourselves in a heartbeat. Would you want to go to God and actually confess a sin that you didn't actually commit? No, we want to make sure God knows who we are, don't we? Not Daniel. We don't have to have participated in any of those. Because I know that the same spirit that allowed the church to continue to worship this, this partial worship of the power of the cross has caused me much more heinous sins. And yet you still let me belong. In fact, you let me get up here and try to convince you that I know what I'm talking about. 
The other argument is that, you know, that all that happened nearly 100 years ago, 150 years ago, 200 years ago. I read an article by Pastor Daniel Sisto. He's an African-American pastor in Maryland. He wrote this for Spectrum just last year, year before last, actually. So this is the year before last, all right? We're not talking about ancient history anymore. He said, I've heard more Adventists say unchristlike things and act in unchristlike ways than I care to admit. The worst of them all is what happened in the summer of 2017. He said, the KKK, neo-Nazis, and other racists from around the country descended upon Charlottesville, Virginia, just a few miles from where I lived and pastored. These white supremacists killed a young woman, injured 28 others when a, 20, when a white 20-year-old man plowed his car into a group of people, peaceful counter-protesters. In the first weeks that followed, I was speaking at another church, sharing my firsthand experience of the evil and animosity I had witnessed. I started my talk by saying, I'm not okay because white supremacists, white nationalists, neo-Nazis, KKK members, and other domestic terrorist groups thought they could come into my town and cause my friends fear. As soon as I finished that first sentence, several people in the congregation stood up and walked out of the sanctuary. Let that sink in, he says. I said I was not okay with the KKK and church members walked out of the sanctuary. At the conclusion of my talk, which was about the unity we have in Christ, several of that church's leaders approached me asking why I was calling people KKK and Nazis. Had they not seen the photos I displayed of men in hoods bearing swastikas at the rally? These church members were more concerned for the people that I was labeling as Nazis than they were for a dead woman who was marching for love and equality. For instance, there was a time at a workers meeting. Workers meeting, okay, so who's he sitting with? (laughs) Sitting at a table full of pastors. I was at breakfast, several seasoned pastors. All happened to be white. We were discussing the next day's schedule when one of the pastors sarcastically said, oh great, three black guys will be speaking. I should get a lot out of this. Implication being that this middle-aged white man could learn nothing from the three black presenters. All of whom were well-accomplished, well-known speakers in our church, even internationally recognized. the same pastor who told that we were going to eat at a restaurant called the Afghan Kebab asked if we would receive a bulletproof vest upon entering the establishment. Two thousand seventeen. Clergy ordained. Their congregations that give those men the permission to be pastors, the same that you've given me. So Laodicea, what do we do? What is it? What is it that we have to understand about this closed door and about the knock and the voice? Well, it's simple and we've heard it and we've been hearing it for years, right? Anybody ever prayed the prayer, Lord, break my heart for what breaks your heart? Right? Anybody ever nobody ever prayed that prayer? I did. I can't say that I meant it. (laughs) But I have prayed that prayer. Let my heart break with what breaks yours. Jesus said, yeah, you've locked me out. 
See, but we, we know that this is a, a, a spiritual argument because he hasn't walked around in a body that actually had hands that he could knock on the door, right? He hasn't done that. He hasn't done that for years. So who's he speaking of? He's speaking of those who are the least of these because I live in them. By the way, he reminds us, I live in you too. You're my presence and you've locked my presence out. So you have to wonder then, what is Laodicea trying to reach the world with? Are we any better than Ephesus who tried to reach the world with something else rather than love? I'm just asking that we begin to examine these things, that we begin to examine how we talk, we begin to examine how do we refer to people, how we look at, at mission. I remember a few weeks ago, uh, there was, we were discussing something, I thought it was a very good point, very good point, but uh, whoever presented it, uh, we automatically labeled him an Islamic terrorist. He was asking for forgiveness for the Islamic terrorist. I tell you, that's the thing, that's the subtle thing about Christian nationalism and the cross and the power and the flag and everything else is that Christian terrorists get a pass. You ever heard anybody labeled a Christian terrorist? No. How about these guys? You ever referred to the KKK as Christian terrorists? No. But no, have a handful of Islamic extremists commit an act of terrorism, and now all of a sudden, every Islamic is what? A terrorist. I'm not saying that we can't be patriotic. I'm not saying that we can't love America. By the way, I'm not saying that we can't die for America. I believe America's a pretty good reason to die. Killing, that's another story, we can talk about that. But I don't believe that nationalism has much, or any, if anything, to do with military. It's talking about the tactics. It's talking about what we worship. It's talking about taking power that doesn't belong to the cross and calling it the power of the cross. And using the exact same tactics that the first beast did in order to get people to worship the second beast. I'm kind of stuck in Minnesota today, but there was a journalist in Minnesota. His name was Sinclair Lewis. He said once, he said, when fascism comes to America, it will be carrying a cross and wrapped in a flag. Martin Luther, horrible anti-Semite, by the way, once said, God doesn't need your good works, but your neighbor does. And by the way, I managed to get through this. I'm not going to make it sound like it was a a monumental task. I managed to get through this the same way that Ellen White managed to get through everything that she said about slavery. And she mentioned political parties how many times? Not once. This isn't about politics. Just ask yourself a question, though. Does my politics dictate my theology? Or does my theology dictate my politics? It'll show in one way, and that's how we treat our neighbors. It'll show in one way, 
That's how we decide who is out and who is in. Jews demand signs and Greeks desire wisdom, but we proclaim Christ crucified. A stumbling block. A stumbling block to Jews, a stumbling block to believers, foolishness to the Gentiles. But to those who are both called Jews and Greeks, it is Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. We have to lay aside our works of darkness. We have to quit... uh, Advertising, if you will, the cross as a sword, as a weapon. We have to get away from the language that God favors empire or nation. He doesn't. He doesn't favor empire or nation, and by the way, he, he, doesn't, he doesn't condemn empire or nation. Our own nation ourselves has been condemned many, many times by God, according to our leaders, according to our prophets. North and South, Jew and Gentile. We find our morality in love and not in anything else we've been trying to substitute. It's one thing to quarrel about bits of doctrine, but it's disturbing at this time to be quarreling about fundamental love. Love needs to be without violence, without force, without fear. It's the one cause that we should be united on. I'll leave you with Philip Yancey in his book, um, Vanishing Grace. He said this, he said, outsiders regard evangelicals as moralists who want to impose their head beliefs on a diverse society. As Miroslav Volf noted, when a religion, any religion, tries to force itself on others who do not share its belief, it creates backlash stirs up opposition. Evangelicals led the fight for women's suffrage and the abolition of slavery, but also led the fight against both of those movements. African-American pastors, many of them evangelicals, spearheaded the civil rights movement, even as white evangelicals in the South largely opposed it. In the 1980s, Jerry Falwell urged American Christians to buy gold cougarans and to promote U.S. investment in South Africa in an effort to shore up apartheid. Currently, evangelicals take a prominent role in supporting pro-life legislation while championing the death penalty, gun rights, and military ventures. Nancy asks us this one question, Laodicea. Do we believe that just nobody notices the discord? Do we believe that we get a break for being remnant? So, we come to our end. We come to the power of the cross. They were sick of looking at that verse anyway. It's been up there for how many weeks? We proclaim Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to the Gentiles. As with every other time that we've talked about what to do now, I don't know what to do now. We're still trying to figure out what normal is going to look like, right? We're still trying to figure out what church is gonna be tomorrow. 
when we can't even figure out what it was yesterday and what it is today. But whatever happens, I praise God that we get to do it together. I hope that we can unify at least around that, is that we get to do it together. And I praise God that it's this family, that at least for this neighborhood, at least within this building and and maybe a few blocks around and wherever you drive to, that because you are there, I am confident to know that whoever runs into you will not lack the grace of God after you've met them. Thank you for holding on with me all these weeks and especially today and a couple weeks ago. These two are tough. They're tough to preach. They're tough to hear. Amen. But thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. (laughs) 